You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wine, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit hankgarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is. Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Sarah Strohmeyer on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It's called Do I Know You? And this is a fantastic uh, thriller that uh, it has one of the the best premises that, that I've uh, encountered in quite a while. And uh, I, I'm recommending this book to everyone. I love it so much. Uh, welcome to the show, Sarah. Well, thanks for having me. I really like to uh, talk about writing and being an author, so I'm really excited about this podcast. Absolutely. I'm excited to have you. Uh, Before we get into talking about all the great stuff that we're going to get into today, Sarah, we begin each show with the same question, and that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Well, you know, probably like a lot of authors, I have that engraved in my brain and I even know the date because it was the date that former Vice President Spiro Agno resigned in 1972. Stay with me here. So I was 10 years old. It was October 10th, 1972 and I wrote a pledge to myself and I think I had just finished uh, Little Woman, Louisa May Alcott. So I was kind of in that mode and wrote a letter to myself saying that I would become an author and then I sent it to my brother who was uh, much older than I, was a student at uh, Boston University, and he wrote back uh, a lovely note on the title page of The Iceman Cometh. So there you go. I absolutely remember that clear as day. I think I was in fifth grade. I've heard lots of of answers to that question (laughs) and lots of varied answers. First time ever on the show in 1,200 episodes that Spiro Agnew has uh, has factored into that question. That's amazing, and uh, you know you're you're on the the uh, the author stories Mount Rushmore for that answer, for sure. Uh, (laughs) Spiro, Sarah, um, you know I know a lot of people have definitive moments that they can point to and and some people don't have a definitive moment but they they have this realization at some point in their life that that they are storytellers and that that there will be a book that comes out you know some someday most people you know envision multiple books but you know most people have at least you know the the idea that that they will publish a book um what happens to most people, though, is life tends to you know, muddy the waters and, uh, you know, very few people have the singular pursuit that that this is what I'm going to do and all I'm going to do. Um, and, you know, you you get busy with uh, with living life and starting a family and paying bills and all of the stuff that comes with it. But writing always has a way of coming back around and, and coming back into your life. What what, uh, what has your experience been like? Well, I think that's a really good question uh, and certainly a common scenario. I did not start publishing books until I was the mother of two young kids while I had a full-time job. So I was working as a reporter in uh, Vermont 
And I had just put my husband through law school. He had kind of had an epiphany in his early 30s that that's what he wanted to do. And we had pulled up roots and moved from Ohio to Vermont. And I remember there was a moment where I said, and I'd always had these books clicking around my head, I guess, since the Spiro Agnew retirement day. And I thought, you know, I have, is I'm 35 years old and I have got to do it now or I'm never going to do it. And there were a couple of, there were a couple of moments uh, that I think were key. One was, I remember reading an author, I wish I could remember her name. And she said, look, you just find space. You, if it's in the boiler room next to the heater, you just find that space and you write. And that's what I did. I would put in a full day's work and come home and do dinner and I would get up from the table and I would actually return to my office down in the in the state capitol here in Montpelier and and write. And I had a lot of friends at the time who also kind of quit their jobs and wrote and a lot of times they got overwhelmed and there were a couple of there were a couple of incidents that spurred me along. One was the day that my brother died. I, he died at the age of 45 and it was in the summer and I was assigned to do obit duty, believe it or not, on that day for this newspaper in New Hampshire. And I called my editor and said, my brother died. And he said, I know it's a, it's a summer schedule. So, um, can you come in anyway? Oh, wow. <laughs> and I came to work and I was taking the obituaries of other people who had died. And I just broke down in tears. I mean, I think I made three hours and then I thought, you know what? This journalism, I've I've grown up at it, but I'm not. I'm, I'm better than this. I'm not going to do this. I'm never going to have this experience again. So every time I would kind of, you know, oh, do I really need? To, I'm so tired. Or I would say I would remember that moment and I would get my butt in that chair and write. So <laughs> that was. Um, I think there are two different things we're talking about here. We're talking about the story that's inside our heads, which we love, and the characters who we develop and create and the plot and the arcs. And then there's actually getting it down on paper or in a computer screen. And those are two very different activities. So I don't mean to say I wasn't a writer at that time, but I until you get it down on paper, until you get to that 90,000 words and press you know, print and start going over your and start redrafting, I, you know, the, you're not a writer. Right. And, 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 and absolutely valid. Um, um, Sarah, wouldn't that first book that you started writing, was that the first book that you had published? No. So there's another wacky story here. I think my entire writing career is just built on, on, on bizarre stories, but when my when we when I had kid number two, I was 32 years old, and I my we had moved to the woods of Vermont, and my world kind of closed in. My husband was studying for the bar exam, and I was stuck at home with a child who had who would scream from uh, 3 p.m. until 8 p.m. every night. And it was he just had horrible colic. He's a wonderful kid, and I was also with these uh, with these kind of I, I'm going to try to be as nice about this politically correct mothers as possible and they were distressed that my four-year-old daughter who is extreme feminist right now was playing with barbies and they would ask me to put barbies away but you know as soon as you please put the barbies away and um 
So I, in my kind of postpartum insanity, wrote this book called uh, Barbie Unbound, a parody of the Barbie obsession. I couldn't get any publishers to go with it because they were all afraid of lawsuits. But this lovely um, lesbian feminist press in North Vermont said, we'll do it. And so, and so they did. And we were immediately covered by the Wall Street Journal, who said, you're going to be sued. And uh, we weren't. And it got to be, it was this weird cult hit and it was a lot of fun to do. I shot it with a photographer from the paper on, a, on our spare time and we had Barbie and all these literary and modern, I mean, now it's all derivative, it's all been done, but at the time no one would do it because Mattel wouldn't touch it. But I, it was, it was a great hit. So that was what started my, that was what started my illustrious literary career was Barbie. That's, that is so that's such an amazing story. Um, Sarah, I know that um, you worked as a reporter, and I've met a number of people um, doing this show that that also began their career as as reporters or journalists. And I um, I'm always fascinated by um, by the the ability to to do that job and then write fiction. Um, do you? Do you find that there are any tools that you picked up along the way working as a reporter that help you now as a fiction writer? And, and you know, on the surface, you may say, well, one is, is you know, telling what you see and the other is making up stories. But mm-hmm. um, I, to me, like, especially in a bigger city where you may have three or four different newspapers and, um, you know, news outlets and you all show up to cover a story and you're going to get, you know, five or six different uh, vantage points on that story because everyone sees it from their perspective and you know there's certain details that that stand out to you that may not stand out to the reporter to your left or right um are, are there any things that you picked up along the way that help you now as a fiction writer that's another interesting question i would say in some ways being a reporter worked against me because i had to fight the pyramid uh template for for reporting and and I'm old I mean I'm 58 years old so we we learned how to write in pyramid style and that's very different than how reporters write now um so the the impulse to to get to the end or to to get the hook to get people interested in the story would sometimes work against me in writing thrillers or suspense because what you really want to do is you want to suck people in in a different way and so I had to work I had to I had to fight that temptation to put all the information out there at once. The what it does, what helps you is just the concept of deadlines and respecting editors. When you have a really great editor, and I've been lucky to have some really great editors, including my current one at HarperCollins, um, you know, it's you you. There's no you, you can't be a prima donna. You learn to uh, trash, you know, kill your darlings, as they say, and you learn that. There are you learn to be a little humble, I think, and and after being a reporter, because not only have you uh, learned how to be edited, but you've also learned how to deal with public uh, ridicule, <laughs> uh, <laughs> criticism, and you know that's nothing compared to the world of Twitter now, which I just think is a vicious, vicious place, and I hate it. But the you it's know a dumpster fire. Let's call it what it is. It is. It's a dumpster fire. <laughs> and I have seen really great authors and really people just go down in flames. And it's just, I feel so sorry for them. And I don't know, I honestly don't know how you get survive. I, so, so my experience as a reporter really didn't 
help me that much compared to what's going on today. But I think those are, I think the the biggest advantage is this being able to be disciplined and write and to be edited. And that's, I think, the best. Um, and I think maybe you appreciate a little bit of dialogue. I certainly met some characters along the way. And uh, as a reporter, you always are thinking, oh, someday this will make a great book. This will make a great book. And then when you sit down to write it, you're like, eh, it's not that great. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, you wrote a series of books, the Bubbles Yablonsky mystery yeah. series. Where where did Bubbles come from? Well, that's a good question. Another one. Um, it came from two places. So remember, I've got this illustrious Spiro Agnew Barbie background, right? So that's right. where I'm coming from. Um, you know, I am not the Iowa's writer's school. My it's Barbie was my impetus. So I had her in my brain. And I am from a steel town in Pennsylvania, where it was a steel town once upon a day, called Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And I, I always wanted to set bubbles, but I always wanted to write about Bethlehem. And actually, it was an interview I had with Janet Ivanovich, who used to live up here in New Hampshire. And I showed her my Barbie book. And she said, you know, you call her bubbles and set her in Bethlehem. Boom, boom, boom. Uh, Janet used to live right around the corner in Easton, Pennsylvania, uh, where her husband had been a professor. So she was familiar with the area. And that's where I took off. And I loved pink wall hair salons, you know, back in the day. Um, that oh, was, yeah. you know, I don't, you know, <laughs> my mother would go once, you know, she had an appointment every Friday with Mario and you'd go down to this pink wall hair salon. Everybody knew everybody. You bought them Christmas gifts. You, you know, it was just the, just was the atmosphere. So I wanted to replicate that atmosphere, but actually I have to tell you, so I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but I'll just very briefly say that when I was promoting Bubbles, I would dress up like Bubbles. And remember, I was much younger and I would go, I would, this is when they put you on book tours and I went around the, the country and I would pack this gel filled uh, leopard print bra and a see-through leopard top and this big blonde wig and this tight skirt and fishnet stockings and heels. And I would walk into bookstores like that. And that was how I would do my presentation. You know, I don't know what I was thinking, but it was it was fun. It was That's really fantastic, a by the way. <laughs> but there was a problem in that I was. That's that's how I landed on the you know terrorist watch list was because I had all these one way tickets under my author's name and I had absolutely no ID on my under my author's name except for my passport. And I guess it was 2002. I was flying around all that summer and suddenly I started getting stopped and frisked. And I remember at Southwest Airlines, they opened up the top of my suitcase right in front of us. Everybody's going in, you know, marching right past you. They made me drink my water bottle. And then they started pulling out the blonde wig and the leopard print gel filled bra and the, and the see-through leopard print top. And I also happened to be reading Jennifer Weiner's book, Good in Bed, at the time. So, I mean, it was just not... I was mortified. Every It was just, just this humiliation. But that's actually what led to Do I Know You, this book that's coming out on November 30th from HarperCollins, was that experience. So you see, it all flows together, Hank. That that might be one of the best stories I've ever heard. Dabble is a proud sponsor of Author Stories. Dabble is an easy-to-use, cloud-based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize, plot, and create amazing stories wherever they are. Write in our desktop app, on your Mac or Windows computer, tablet, or mobile device. Dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices. Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. 
we got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit DabbleWriter.com for your free trial. You have an amazing story idea. You execute the writing and editing flawlessly, and now the only thing missing are readers. We can help you go from author to author superhero with Story Origin. Story Origin is a one-stop shop for marketing tools with a community of amazing authors working together to find reviewers, build mailing lists, increase sales, and collect feedback from beta readers. Everything an author needs, all in one place from providing review copies or beta copies, reader magnets to ensure you stay connected with readers, easily distribute audio promo codes, universal retail links to send readers directly to the proper point of purchase, or provide direct download links for members of your mailing list. Story Origin has all the tools you need in one easy-to-use site. Use the promo code ASP21 at checkout when subscribing to the yearly plan, and you will get 10% off your first year. This code will expire December 31st, so hurry over and subscribe now. StoryOriginApp.com <laughs> that, you know, not everybody gets to land on a terrorist watch list. Uh, I wish I could land off the terrorist watch list. If anybody is from the TSA is listening, could you please get me off? Because I have not been able to get off yet. Oh, my goodness. That that is that is amazing from my perspective, probably mortifying from yours. I, I can see that. It's a real hassle. Yes, I almost have to plan for it. I uh, we were my our son was run, running in um, Kansas outside Kansas City. He was a two time All American. This is the same kid who used to scream from three to to eight p.m. Um, and in college, and it was nationals. And so we were flying out from Montreal, and I thought, oh, you know, I'll get out of Montreal, I won't be caught. Nope, mm-mm. had to stand there, have my luggage all look through. I mean, that was just five years ago or so, and I. You know, it just never ends. And then on the way back across the Canadian border, I was detained. I've been detained everywhere. I've been detained in Barbados. I've been detained in the Turks and Caicos at JFK uh, and and at Heathrow, which is where I found out about super recognizers, which is the the premise of this book. But, you know, it's it's I wish I could get off. So from from writing bubbles, um, which you know is a mystery series, but you know with more lighthearted elements, shall we say? Yep. To do I know you, which is more of uh, of kind of a, a darker thriller, if you want to uh, look at it that way, but definitely with humorous aspects. There's definitely that Sarah Strohmeyer um, feeling about the book. Um, at, how do you make that transition from? Uh, from the lighthearted mysteries to uh, to the new thriller. Well, I think you know, I I think it's I follow what I read and what I like to read. So if I I stopped reading kind of cozy mysteries and lighthearted mysteries and I started reading more complex thrillers or domestic suspense and really like them, I think that the structure of them is a, is a challenge. I think the unreliable narrator has changed everything. And I guess the unreliable narrator is gone, but I just read a book by Michelle Martinez Campbell, who also lives in Hanover. Um, that's excellent, excellent called stranger on the beach with an unreliable character. And I just wanted to outline the whole book just to kind of get the structure in my head. And I, I think that that's, uh, you know, I, I really like following what I love. I know that some people, you know, write romance, but they read thrillers. I don't know how you can do that. I just, I want to write what I'm interested in reading. And, 
And so that's how I think I've made that transition. Maybe it just got older. Maybe the world got darker. I don't know. I also think that the whole thriller domestic suspense world just really blossomed in the past 10 to 15 years. It's just really taken off with, you know, Gillian Flynn and uh, a whole bunch of people, you know, Ruth Ware and Lucy Foley and, um, Oh God, the best one of them all. I'll, I'll come back to her. Um, you, you know, just, I think it's just really, Lisa Jewell, I think it's I, it's just so cool what's going on. It's really, really fascinating. Uh, it's, re it's challenging to write, it's fun to write, and it's, um, and it's interesting. So that's, that was my motivation there. Well, you, you're absolutely right. The, the genre has exploded over the last um, decade and the, um, uh, the kind of um, addition of that's probably not the right um, way to look at it of the unreliable narrator um, kind of the popularization of that mm -hmm. trope if you will and I'm kind of making air quotes around trope there yeah um, the uh, you know definitely kind of upped the stakes of of the genre but also made it more difficult for writers that that you know because all all writers are readers um you know writers who love the genre for themselves that then want to try their hand at it um the stakes kind of go through go through the roof um mm -hmm. you know because people have already done this you know right. how how do i carve out my niche in this um and do i know you you've got a, a really interesting um premise that you play with and that's the the idea of the super recognizer which you mentioned a minute ago um mm -hmm. first off what was it that you found out about this? Because I, I think of, you know, when I started reading about the book, um, I, I, I had heard this term before, or, or I had heard that this was a thing that existed, but I didn't really know what it meant and 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 how these people, um, you know, what it what it would mean to actually meet someone like that. So, how did you get familiar with who these people are, and and then when did that start? Um, kind of formulating in your mind, you know, there's a story in here that, that I could, uh, that I could dig into. Well, that goes back to the shoe bomber. When I was, uh, I used to be published by hotter headline in England and they very nicely flew me over there from Houston and uh, where I was on a book tour to attend a conference. And I guess because I came from Houston, I don't know. I, there was some sort of because remember, I'm on the terrorist watch list. I was I was pretty much surrounded when I got to Heathrow. <laughs> and um, these guys came out of nowhere. I mean, they just kind of stepped out of the crowd. and it wasn't it wasn't the usual you work your way through the maze of of you know, the rabbit worn to get to the table to be interviewed to go to this. No, these guys came out of nowhere, and they said, "Could you please come with me?" And I ended up in this room and with these very, very polite, I can't stress how polite they were. They were so polite security guys. I guess they were, I don't know if they were from Scotland Yard or whatever. And they said, uh, they gave me the same line over and over, which is, no, 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 you're just a random sampling. You're just a random sampling. Mm -hmm. And uh, proceeded to ask a bunch of questions. And finally, when we were done, I said, we were st we started talking about American security on airlines and the shoe bomber, you know, people having to take their shoes off. And he said, oh, you guys are so far behind. You know, we've been dealing with the IRA since the since forever, right. for decades. And we've have we are we are hit so many steps ahead of you. We have 
super recognizers in the in Heathrow and looking at cameras and they're infilled they are around the airport and they are able to detect terrorists, people who are known, who are even disguised. And so I had this long, fascinating discussion with them about how they'd been using super recognizers in, you know, during crowds and parades and at airports, anytime there would be a huge gathering and a potential for a terrorist situation to uh, identify people and pull them out of the crowd. And so that was 2002. And that's just been percolating in the back of my brain. And since then, there have been some articles. I think there was one in the New Yorker. I, I've just been reading about it. So I decided that the time had come to to have a character with this innate ability. And where would that most be? Where would that be problematic in her life? And what would be most frustrating to her? And I thought the most frustrating instant would be where she saw somebody, in this case, this the suspect in her sister's um, disappearance, and no one would believe her. And that was, you know, that would that would just drive her crazy. And she would know because she's a super recognizer, she knows who she saw. And for that person whom she identified to be beautiful, rich and marrying into a wellness uh, con conglomerate kind of like goop uh, made her insulated from any from any scrutiny or interrogation. So that's was the basis for do I know you, which I also it was a lot of fun to do have a, a group of people who do who are in the wellness business because I spent a lot of time on that goop website and reading everything about goop and it just it's still mind blowing and still fun. I su really <laughs> highly suggest checking out their holiday impossible wish wish list or whatever. I think Colbert does something with it. It's very funny. That's fantastic. So um, I, I love hearing about the beginnings of things from people and and the 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 moment when a story, um, you know, comes out of literally nothing. And then all of a sudden um, there's the beginnings of a story. And then you as the writer start digging and, you know, kind of pulling the story out of the earth, so to speak. Um, but so you've got this idea of the super recognizer. Um, was there a moment where these all these ideas kind of coalesced and then you you say aha I, I i i now know you know uh how to you know where the story is here um or you know did were you very deliberate in okay i've got this super recognizer now what can i do with this idea and then you start kind of casting characters to to play that how, how does that moment of creation well, for you. I have to tell you, Hank, I am the most inefficient writer. I am, uh, I, I don't want to stereotype people. They say women uh, clean around the house and or from the center out or around and men clean linearly. linearly. Um, I wish I could be a linear writer who just thinks of an idea, proceeds to do an outline, and then writes the whole book. What happens with me is that I have to go through multiple drafts before I get to that aha moment. In fact, if my editor is listening to this, in the current book I'm writing right now, I about a month ago came to that aha moment and had to scrap everything I wrote, so I think I'm going to be late. Um, <laughs> But there is that coalition moment. And I and and this is this goes back to my theory of the subconscious. The subconscious is this wonderful device and tool in our brains, and it is working constantly. And you can actually give it orders. I have found that you say, look, I don't know what to do with this particular plot point, or I don't know what to do with this character. Or, I don't how is this all going to come together? Subconscious, figure it out. And what what I found is that the 
that some of the some of the pages I've been writing, which seem to make no sense, or why is this character in Florida, or what happens, why is he in the automotive industry? You know, they actually it all comes together. It's like, oh, that's why that character is in Florida. That's why he's a, he runs a chop shop. That's why, uh, and you the subconscious can kind of bring it together where you're doing the dishes or you're taking a shower and you think, that's it. That's what I want. Yes. Okay. Now I get it. And then you furiously outline, you call your editor and you say, no, we actually say it on a podcast. I'm going to be, I'm not going to make that November 30th (laughs) deadline, Amy. At least, sorry. Um, But yes. So in this case, in this book, what I had originally was, I think I had, uh, instead of the goop group, I had kind of like a JFK Hyannisport compound. And because JFK Jr. was a figure in my young adulthood and I still love him and no matter what anybody else says about him or that he's dead or not dead, he's just cute. Um, and, but my agent said, after she read that draft, she said, that's just not going to fly. It's just not timely enough and it's just not going to go. So go back to the drawing board. And then when I went back to the drawing board, it's, I realized how, how it would all work and then it clicked. And then, you know, sometimes when it clicks, you really start, you know, start knocking off about 4,000, 5,000 words at a time. And so you can really get in the groove. So, so tell me um, about the characters. Jane Ellison is a super recognizer. Right. Um, and she, she has a past where some things happened right. and her unique ability um, kind of runs headlong into this past mystery. Um, set well, it up for us from there. So, I, so like a lot of people with special skills, uh, they are strong. They can be really strong in one area and deficient in another. And I also find have found in Jane, well, in Jane's case, when I designed her, that she would that being a super recognizer uh, couldn't probably can be stressful on your on your mental health a little bit. And I'm not saying that she is an unreliable narrator specifically, but I'm saying that no human being walking this earth is a is a 100% reliable narrator of their own lives or events as any defense lawyer knows. Right. We all have a version in our brains that we think is true and that may be 100% wrong. And that's not we're not trying to deceive anyone. That's just really how we see the world or how we heard a conversation or how we, we thought we saw what happened at an intersection. You know, that is what we deal with. In Jane's case, she has gone through some definite trauma. She was 17 years old when she saw her sister who had been dealing with uh, opiate issues. And this is an issue that's really near and dear to my heart because for one thing, I think if you maybe read the story yesterday that 100,000 people have died of drug overdoses during the pandemic, and that is uh, a crisis in our country There, that goes, that knows no social bounds, class, whatever. We have, a, for example, a really big problem with opiate addiction in Vermont, so do a lot of rural areas. And in Jane's case, her sister, Kit, who was a stellar student, had an accident at a, on a on a you know gymnast at a gymnastics uh, event and broke her leg and was given some you know you know oxycontin to get through the pain and that you know you can have three three days of oxycontin you can your brain that's enough for your brain to be primed for to to receive that kind of drug and 
So I really wanted to bring that story into Jane's life because I think a lot of people are dealing with that. And my own brother, the one who died, you know, when I was at the obit, he had a he had a, a, a drug addiction problem and he died. So I mean, we're we're just we're we're a society that is really hurting from people we love who have suffered drug addiction and who are not doing well. And so that's an aspect in Jane's background. And that was enough for her to, for for Kit's disappearance and also having gone through all the trauma of her being addicted to opiates for her, for her mother to fail. And so Jane's coming from a very, very vulnerable point of you know, stance. She's very, very much alone. And She's got, you know, she's got a boyfriend now. That's good. And she's, you know, says she had this job until she recognized this woman and then she was in trouble. But so that's where, you know, I, I think that that's, that's, that's her history that I wanted to really bring into the story because I think it adds depth and I think it adds relatability. And I also think it's true. One of the hallmarks of the genre um, is the, um, the kind of, heavy weighty feeling of that that kind of gets you into the psychological thriller um mm-hmm. and and do i know you absolutely has uh you know has that mood um about it but like we mentioned earlier your kind of signature humor uh has a way of seeping into the the narrative uh especially um w- what is it about uh including humor and uh, snarkiness uh, in a lot of uh, senses that that elevates this kind of story. Well, I'm glad you said that there was any moodiness to it because I was afraid that there wasn't enough moodiness to it. Um, I think that the first of all, humor is part of life and we are we live in a light and dark world. Not everything is completely dark and I hope that some people have some light. So I tried. That's how you would kind of live your life normally. And I, I've read plenty of thrillers where it's just dark, 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 and I love it. It's just like doing a really intensive jigsaw puzzle. But I also think my my instinct tells me that we are probably about to move out of that singularly dark world. I think that probably if you've been reading a lot of thrillers, you're going to be burnt out on that. And you know, Hank, I can only write what I can write. I can't imitate anybody. I can only I can only be myself. And people either like it or they don't. And that's just the way it is. And I completely respect that. And I and that's my attitude myself. But I have the feeling that if you are a beginning, to, if you're writing thrillers these days, you probably want to think um, about. I don't know if it's lightening them up or maybe adding some other perspectives or multi dimensions because we're I I just think we've been down so many rabbit holes we're, we're going to need a we're going to need another warn or we're going to need to come out of the into the light or something because we just it it needs to diversify does I, that was rambling but does that make any sense absolutely and and to me it almost um uh, makes the book more impactful. Um, when you can add a little levity, a little humor, a little snarkiness, um, because it, it it lets the uh, it lets the reader off the hook for a moment, yeah, and you know a- allows your 
uh, adrenaline to come down. And then so that when you then hit us with, you know, more of the of the thriller elements of more of the psychological suspense elements, they they almost hit harder because hmm. you let your guard down. And I, I love that about uh, what you've done here. And I absolutely hope to see more of that in the genre. Oh, good. Uh, you know, uh, going back to Ivanovich, the, she she did that really well in those yes. early Stephanie Plum books, because she she had she was hysterical. She's and then she'd have these really violent scenes <laughs> that were scary, and she was kind of the master of that. I mean, I haven't read a lot of her more recent stuff, but those first few books, they would they you were yanked back and forth, and next thing you know, it was all over, and you were sitting on a couch with Stephanie eating a bucket of fried chicken. It was like, whoa. What was that? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, when um, if if readers are are new to you and and maybe even new to the genre, um, what do you think they can expect? What what is a if there was an elevator pitch for the book or for getting into these types of books? Maybe um, not even specifically this book, but what would you tell a reader who is new to the genre that they can uh, they can expect to experience? Well, I think what they could expect to experience with Do I Know You is to have a respite, to tune out and go into the world set on Cape Cod in a, in a dark Cape Cod beach or a beautiful Cape Cod setting with beautiful people and uh, a sister's uh, pursuit to find what exactly happened to her oldest sister on that night on the beach when she was overdosing and uh, at the water's edge with a mysterious woman? And I think what we all want is a break to be, we want to be riveted. We want to feel, uh, we want to be part of the action. We want to be part of the characters. We want to be part of their family or maybe not their family. We want to look inside a privileged uh, club cloistered world, which uh, is definitely in Do I Know You because of these people who live on an island who've got this great wellness um, compound. And, you know, it's there's, there's a puzzle to solve and there's humanity and there's mystery and there's deceit and there's humor. So I think that's what this type of genre offers. I just... Um, I've, I've just, I can have a list of recommendations for people of, of what books to read if they're just getting into this genre. And, uh, you know, I think that, for example, Lucy Foley's Guest List, which is a, a, a wedding set on what I think is the Blasket Islands off the Ireland's coast, westmost coast, is just incredibly suspenseful with crashing waves and and drunken guests and intrigue around every corner. I think that if you wanted to say, if you wanted to read something that's really unusual, I would recommend uh, J.P. Delaney's The Perfect Wife, which is about a kind of Jeff Bezos type who creates a uh, his wife into a robot. That's in the first chapter. I'm not giving anything away, but uh, that also has an interesting second person uh, recommendation. I think if you're looking for, um, I, you know, I've got to read the, these toxic things. I don't know if you've read it, but uh, you oh, know, yeah. there's yeah. I mean, there's so there's the Silvia Moreno Garcia Untamed Shore, which is I don't know if you've read Silvia Moreno Garcia's uh, Mexican Gothic. It's an absolutely great book. Uh, she has this kind of noirish atmosphere you know so i all these books just transport you with with atmosphere hopefully great characters and uh, a puzzle mystery love it well the new book 
<laughs> excuse me do i know you is available everywhere now when you're hearing this uh when you're when you download this episode and listen to it the do i know you came out yesterday so you can run out to your local bookstore grab it um it's available in trade paperback so you can uh you can buy it and not have to mortgage your house to do so um <laughs> or pick up several copies and give us christmas gifts because uh now's the perfect time to do that also available in kindle edition we're going to have links to it in the show notes where you can grab it from amazon also audiobook um have you listened to the audiobook yet sarah i have not but i got the really fun assignment of picking the of helping to pick the uh actors and that was so much fun because some of them i recognized and i was like i was fan i was like oh my god i remember <laughs> i listened to a lot of audiobooks i don't know if you do too oh but- yeah and uh, they've just talk about taking off. Boy, is that taken off? You know, I, it's just fantastic what you can, what, what they, how they transform books. That, you know, when I go back to reading them, I still hear those voices. And, and that's actually a good thing, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, go grab Do I Know You Today for either from your local bookstore or in the editions that we told you about. The links are in the show notes. Um, Sarah, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you do, where can they find you online? Well, I have a website, Sarah Strohmeyer, S-A-R-A-H-S-T-R-O-H-M-E-Y-E-R.com. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, same name, Instagram. And uh, in my other life, I'm a Vermont town clerk. So I post a lot about what goes on in the town clerk's office in this small town. And that's actually pretty fun, too. So I hope you'll come and visit me at Facebook or Twitter. And and, uh, I wish I could give you the free candy that's that's always in my bowl down (laughs) at the front desk. But... I'll try to give you some other candy. That's fantastic. We'll put links to all those places in the show notes to make it easy for folks to find you. Do I Know You is available everywhere now when you're hearing this. Don't forget to go grab it today. Sarah, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Well, thank you. This was really, really interesting and fun. I really appreciate it. Now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from Richard Gleaves, the Jason Crane series. You took a terrible risk tonight. Why? You don't know? The first rule. I was told by a friend that I shouldn't reveal my gift to anyone who doesn't have a gift themselves. That's exactly right. Because everyone we tell dies. Yes. You might have marked me for death. Made you a target for a ghost. Why can't people know what we can do? What makes it so dangerous? Valerie took up the fireplace prongs and stabbed the logs. It's called the Great Curse. Sparks exploded from glowing crevices and drizzled upwards, ricocheting off the black belly of the cauldron, turning into tiny ashes that disappeared up the chimney. It was cast by a powerful witch over three hundred years ago. Witch? Sorry, but witch? Please, there's no such thing. Valerie closed her eyes. A spoon leapt from Jason's dish and caught him in the temple. He wiped melted ice cream from his cheek. You were saying? She cast the curse to stop the witch trials. In Salem? Jason searched his memory. 1692. They burned her alive. In the Salem Common, the only witch to be burned. The cauldron smoked slightly. Its contents had evaporated. 
A sharp, charred scent filled the room. Wait, said Jason. There were no witches. They were just, I don't know, victims of religious hysteria, right? So you're saying the witch trials were justified? Justified? So if a witch did exist, it would be okay to kill her? No, I just thought... You're right, never mind. There was one witch in Salem, at least. A woman with a powerful gift. She only wanted to protect people like us. To give the gifted their anonymity, refuge. She cast the great curse as she burned. She proclaimed that mortals who know a witch shall know death. And that is the great curse. And it's still in effect after all this time. Mortal, as in non-gifted. No mortal can know about you, about any authentic witch. Jason winced. Isn't there another word besides that? She shrugged. So no one can know what I am, what I can do, or else they become a target. Right. The spirit world will obey the great curse and try to kill them. The spirit world. The other realm. Jason rubbed his eyes. How much of this was reality and how much of this was Valerie's nutty brand of mysticism? He felt himself pulling back, as usual, for fear of contagion. He'd spent his whole life reading science fiction. He hated paranormal tales. This was... this was... not his genre.